Welcome to Marafaya, the show that dives into the climate crisis in Belize. I'm Andrew Habet, and on today's episode, I'll be sharing an interview with Yaya Marin Coleman, a community organizer and grassroots journalist currently investigating Port Loyola constituents' familiarity with the Port of Belize expansion project in Belize City. She shares with me her start in community work from an early age, her thoughts on how organizing can be made most effective, and her take on how Belizeans might proceed from here in reconstructing existing government systems to better serve more Belizeans. So I want to get started first by asking you if you can talk to us a little bit about how did you get involved with your work doing community organizing and grassroots journalism in the south side of Belize City? Well, let me first introduce myself. I'm Yaya Marin Coleman, grassroots journalist, community organizer, and the chairperson of UBAD Educational Foundation which is a 25 years old community-based conscious raising organization at 3304 Partridge Street in Belize City. We're the fourth component of the Black Independent Own Media House Cramandala, which would be a Mandela newspaper, Crime Reader, Crime Television, and Ubat Educational Foundation. I was born in the late 60s. And so I grew up in the 70s and my parents raised children to be community workers. It was a way of life. We saw parents model it, a model the action of caring about families and friends and anything that concerned the community. Our, our neighbors did, our teachers did. We grew up in a Christian household, so the churches we went to did. Vacation Bible schools, Sunday schools, inspiration, very community-oriented. The 70s was extremely community oriented. A lot of visibly black people in Belize City. I, I was raised in Belize City, South Side, and then we moved North Side. And even when we moved North Side, we still, still spent a lot of time in the South Side. Uh, my maternal great grandmother was an Indian woman from the Yabra area. Her name was Hyacinth Haylock. Um, my paternal, my maternal, grandfather was from Davis Bank, which is from the Belize River Valley, um, Belize district. And uh, our father is a surveyor. So I traveled the country at a very young age extensively. And both my parents are avid readers, reading Reader's Digest, National Geographic, Time Magazine, The Inquirer, Playboy Magazine, The Bible, Mills and Boons, Romantic novels so we're avid readers so it, it's this is who I was groomed to be as well as my other three siblings so um grew up here um went to the United States when I was younger came back home attempted to enter the United States I was deported did six months in seven jails and one penitentiary which was a very spiritual moment for me it affirmed my purpose in life um I knew who I was from I was a child. And so life experience taught me who I was. And so that's very different for a lot of people who are who people told them they are. Like somebody said, your name is Andrew Habet. Then you answer to Andrew Habet. That's what they told you. And so when you do internal exploration and self-examination, root yourself in a value system or a spiritual system and consistently hold yourself accountable the most natural conclusion to come to is that you have all the power as the universal source that created 
all the unexplained phenomena globally. And so that means we are equipped to have solutions to any life challenge. It's for us to know that and to act with confidence on that uh, and to be peaceful about it when necessary. So for me, it's, it's a natural way of being. This is, this is the life I've always lived. And there are times because, again, of the colonization, you would go to school and then you're told something different and then in your being, it doesn't feel natural. And then you have to make choices. What is it that you want to do with your life? And for me, the most logical thing is richest way to live and to live as much as you can in harmony with the earth and all other living beings, meaning the two-legged creatures, the trees, the birds, yeah, all that. So it's a natural way of being for me. How did you end up, you know, extending that work that you do right now towards the videos you've been producing recently that show you in communication with people in the Puerto area, asking them questions or about their knowledge of the port's development, Port of Belize yes. specifically? Yes. Currently, Ubad Educational Foundation is in an international agreement with the University of Bristol is the lead university. It's a total of four universities and five countries, and we're focused on food, land, and climate justice in the Caribbean. It's a two-year initiative. It's been pushed back because of COVID-19, and so it'll be the University of Bristol, the University of Antwerp, the University of the West Indies, and the National University of Columbia. The five countries would be Belize, Jamaica, Antigua, from Antigua and Barbuda, um, Puerto Rico, and um, Providence, San Andres in Colombia. And there is one organization or school in each country that would represent a particular interest from a particular community. The intention is what is different about this partnership is that it's a bottom-up partnership as opposed to top-down, where the people on the ground who have credibility, track record of organizing people around a particular concern, where it would intersect with food, land, and climate justice. And then we document that information. And based on what we have organized on the ground, we would then have research assistants, scientists, attorneys, researchers who would support us technically so that whatever it is that we envision to create a solution to the challenge on the ground, that's what the outcome is. And so it, the Port of Belize was not my initial concern. However, because of COVID-19, my initial uh, intention was to work with the Belize Grassroots Youth Employment Association Biggie and Harmonyville and mile 41 and a half on the George Price Road. I am not willing to travel on public bus if I don't have to. And so it was more, it was wiser for me within a COVID-19 pandemic to stay in the city. And the Port of Belize, I have been in solidarity with the workers at the Port of Belize Limited as it relates to their consistent fighting 
haggling, advocating for justice as laborers and as members of the Christian Workers Union. And then I spoke to an elder, uh, Sandra Cowie, and then she brought the port of Belize proposed development to my attention. And after listening to her extensively and better understanding what the concern was, then that's the initiative that UEF um, chose as our contribution to this international agreement. Now, when we looked at the first, uh, when we looked at the first letter that the group of environmental non-governmental organizations, NGOs sent to the prime ministers and others late December, 2020, they had a number of concerns. They listed three. The third, the third point was of interest to us at UEF because it talked about the, and maybe I shouldn't look to, um, to paraphrase what it said. I should just pull it up and share it because it's absolutely uh, relevant. Um, and it's not, a, it's not like it's a long thing that I'm going to be reading from, just yeah. so that I'm accurate with what it is that I'm going to say, because that then became our jump off point. It says, uh, this project has once again revealed that existing laws do not require developers, regulators, or advisory bodies to ensure that there has been meaningful public consultation or that the public's contributions are adequately addressed prior to being submitted for approval. In bold, we therefore recommend that all relevant laws be reviewed by appropriate legal experts and wherever necessary, such laws be amended to strengthen the right of the Belizean public to play a more meaningful role in the management of shared natural resources. So that made all the sense uh, for us to say, our concern will focus on people, people participation when it comes to proposed development in our communities. Oftentimes you hear, as in this proposed development of a expanded cargo terminal, cruise terminal and cruise tourism village at the port of Belize by, um, by two entities known as the Port of Belize Limited and Belize Logistics Terminal Limited at 200 million US dollars uh, proposed development. I heard from the developer, I heard from the government of Belize, I heard from the, a group of environmental NGOs, but there was no collective voice of Belizeans. I spoke to two executive director of two uh, NGOs, and at the time they were very excited about what I wanted to do. They saw the need for it. They were clear that I believe there's a mandate in within environmental NGOs for public outreach. Oftentimes their funding would be focused on a particular interest for that NGO. And especially during, um, during COVID-19, you know, people were not there focused. Now, when you hear an environmental impact assessment, oftentimes when people think the environment, they don't think human beings. And I feel that they're abs that we're absolutely critical Again, oftentimes we're not thought about. And so because there's that need, then UEF chose to organize as best as we can around that. Now, the EIA alone, which is the Environmental Impact Assessment, and again, I'm not an expert on this. I 
It could be very complicated. I want to keep it as simple as possible and focus on what our priorities are. There are four primary actors. That would be the developer, the government of Belize, the Department of the Environment, uh, NIAC, the National Environmental Appraisal Committee, and Belizean people. And so because the laws, as I just read from that letter that the group of environmental, non-governmental organization, NGOs sent to the Prime Minister at the end of 2020, we are already at a disadvantage because legally, the Department of the Environment has no legal obligation to listen to what Belizean people have to say when it comes to proposed development in our communities. So you have the Environmental Protection Act, Chapter 328 of the Substantive Laws of Belize, Revised Edition 2000, and that was established in 1992. And then you have some regulations. So to keep it uh, simple so that we can follow along and, and to understand what UEF is advocating for. We're advocating for the law to change so that the voices of Belizean people, that you have meaningful public participation. And it's not that the public has not been participating at all, because when we listen to one of your other podcasts about ports in Belize, and we listen to Lisa Karn, I think her last name is, from Fragments of Hope, I'm very dedicated, um, committed leader of that team of people, um, a no-nonsense person, and she shared about Harvest Key. And it's not that people's voices weren't documented as within this EIA, and they interviewed seven groups of people and six of those seven groups of people expressed their concerns about dredging uh, and the impact it has had on their lives as fisher folk. So it's not that there's not, our, our voices have not been on record. It's that we have been, our voices are erased, are not respected, are not honored. And so the laws need to be changed. And Belize recently um, signed the Escasu Agreement, which is an agreement within uh, Latin America and Caribbean countries for the importance of public participation when it comes to policy and the environment. Um, Belize needs to, um, ratified, so that's something we'll be organizing around as well. Um, but the fact that we signed it, Belize has an obligation. I just learned that on July, I believe it was 28, there was a virtual meeting. Uh, I don't know who knew about that virtual meeting uh, about Escaso, and, and so um, I want to know more about it. I called the Ministry of the, the Department for the Environment today, and I have to send an email asking mm -hmm. for that link so that we can become more knowledgeable. So we have a responsibility as Belizeans to learn more. And the more we learn, the more strategic and informed we would be to see how we can hold ourselves and the state accountable when it comes to proposed development in our communities. Um, and so one is to have the laws change, two, to advocate for the, um, for the ratification of the Escaso Agreement, and three, to hold the Department of the Environment, the ANIAC, accountable to have public hearings before an EIA is reviewed and to, and to hear us in a meaningful way and take what we say seriously, similar to how the environmental NGOs organized about dredging. And then they put a pause, they went back and they had to do the addendum. And even though they've changed where they're gonna do the, 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 the um, dumping from dredging the ocean floor, there's still concerns, major and meaningful concerns 
Uh, one of the concern again is that the addendum, uh, that there ought to have been a public consultation prior to the submission of that addendum. And then there's so many other things happening at the same time that it's, it's challenging with limited resources and people in survival mode during a COVID-19 pandemic to stay on top of it. UF is an extremely small organization with limited resources. Um, and so that's where we are. And so because I have produced and hosted a number of online community conversations and reasonings around different national concerns and produced uh, and hosted Two Cents Come, which, is, which was for 14 years prior to COVID-19. Uh, I would go into the streets primarily of Belize City and engage Belizeans to get their voices documented about national concerns or uh, primarily concerns that may not make the traditional newscast, but are bread and butter issues for working class folks primarily. And so using that format, I went into the community nearest to the communities nearest to the port of Belize. And a number of the people, as I anticipated, did not know anything about this development. And Channel 7, Creme TV and PG TV agreed to air those ads that um, was produced by uh, filmmaker Sharon Hope um, and a smaller crew um, to produce those ads. I, I asked Love FM, they gave me a cost. I, I was not going to pay for the ad. I thought as a public service announcement as a good corporate citizen that Media House would want to air the ad. That's their prerogative. I did try. And so, um, so those ads ran. Um, there are some things that I need to shorten in the ads. It's a learning process. And then the hope is starting this Saturday for the next three or four Saturdays for one hour from 10 to 11 to have a Zoom meeting, to have conversations with community members to say, listen, this is a concern. Let's talk about what it is that we don't know, what it is that we need to know. How do you think we can better hold the state accountable to have the public consultation? Because the last thing we want is to hear that the EIA was approved without the Belizean people voices being heard and respected in a meaningful way. We're the ones that will have to live for generations if that development goes through. And so before I can ask Belizean people to take a position on it, I have to make sure that they're knowledgeable about it. I, I did the interviews, they're not knowledgeable. So now is to create a public awareness about why public participation is absolutely critical prior to our development being approved in our communities. From the EIA last November, I don't know if you were in attendance at the public consultation then, but at the time, Nextera Consulting Company, the consulting firm that created the EIA, they said that they had been in consultation with frontline communities from the Port of, uh, Port of Belize area. I wanted to know if that was something that you found corroborated from your interviews with people. And if so, what groups were they talking to and how did they end up um, persuading these people one way or another that the Port of Belize would be in their best interest? Well, common sense would tell me, fisherman no, I said fish stink. The developer would want the project to be approved. So within the EIA, they submitted in the annex 
they submitted a survey instrument of questions that they asked people, I believe it was 14 questions. And they were saying that um, presentations were delivered to 220 persons, 169 persons responded to the surveys representing 2,031 persons up to June 8, 2020, since some are organizational responses. 165 of these surveys were 100% complete, four incomplete comments are attached. 51 have not responded and seven media have covered the project and then they named the media houses. And then they would have um, Port of Belize. So they, was, they, they said that they talked to people at Port of Belize. So they have four columns for Port of Belize. It has Port of Belize management team, 11, Port of Belize staff, nine to Port staff, Port staff. I asked uh, the president of the Christian Workers Union if he knew it was most high, if any of the workers from the Port of Belize who are members of the Christian Workers Union were consulted, he said, no. If they were consulted, he would have known. Now they're talking about an expanded cargo area. It would be logical that you have to consult the stevedores. So I, I, don't, I don't see any documentation. If there's documentation, I will be happy to review them. And so I walked, um, I, I've spoken with three credible community organizers in the community, seasoned organizers, and they knew nothing about it. They've heard that there's going to be a development, but they don't know mm -hmm. the details of it. I, I interviewed a sister who is the last house at the end of Jane Usher Boulevard, very intelligent, hardworking sister. I mean, in her own reasoning, she shared her concern about gentrification. Now she didn't use the word gentrification, but she knew exactly what she was concerned about because she has seen um, working class people um, being displaced from their homes and wealthier people uh, would have access to their property. And so the, now this is the part, the last house at the end of Jane Usher Boulevard. I, I don't know who they spoke with. I, I also spoke with a young sister who lives near the Jane Usher Boulevard training in tourism, she said, I don't know anything about it either. So it's for, it's for reasons like these uh, that is so absolutely important that the Department of the Environment and the National Environmental Appraisal Committee hear what UEF is advocating for when it comes to public participation. And they have an obligation because of regional agreements that they've signed like, like Escaso. It's up, to the, it's up to the Belizean people to hold them accountable. We have not traditionally done that. It, it may be new for us, it's time consuming, it could be draining, however, it's in our best interest and the interest of our unborn children. From your research, both into the Port of Belize expansion project as presented through the EAA and conversations with others, what is, uh, what's, your in, what's your impression of the way in which this project would be transformative for the Port Loyola area in particular, because I I think that's one of the more difficult parts to get at in talking to people about how the port would affect people, because you really need to imagine very expansively all the many ways that ecologically things would change and in changing it, you know, impacting, impacting humans in those frontline areas. I had one person tell me that even if we disregarded all of the pollution caused by the cruise ships themselves, there would still be substantive pollution, air pollution from the buses that would be picking up people from the cruise ships. So there are ways in which 
this will affect us that are not even perceptible in the EIA because the EIA doesn't have to attend to those things because they're not of the project itself, but of like, I guess, various different industries that will be influenced by the project too. In, on June 21st, 2021, I represented the Ubuntu Educational Foundation in a webinar with, um, again, these same stakeholders from um, Barbuda, Old Providence, and Santa Catalina Islands, in Colombia, um, Vieques in Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and Grenada. And the, the, the theme for our conversation was capitalism of disaster in the Caribbean. Now, we have so many examples at home and abroad of disaster capitalism. So this is just another mm -hmm. one. Now, usually whenever there is a, I think it's Naomi Klein, if I'm pronouncing her name right. I'm talking about yeah, the that's shock her, that's her. Either there's a natural disaster or there's a disaster that's mm -hmm. made. And when people are distracted, traumatized, then powerful people such as developers or policymakers push through development laws when people are not focused. And then when you come up for air, it's already happened. You have to live with the consequences. Unlike um, the brother that we call the Manatee man said, you would not see a development like this proposed for North yes. Side City. Yes, exactly. So it is very intentional. It is intent. I mean, it's absolutely inhumane. That is what capitalism is. It's for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poor. It is, and so we have to advocate for ourselves. Nobody's going to advocate for us. So we're talking about the Port of Belize proposed development in Southside Belize City, which I must add that traditionally there is cultural and historical currency legacy for mm -hmm. that land. Prior to the late 1970s, when the port was built, there were people living there within that area. And so that's something else to consider. Yeah, and I think it's the... And, and so... This is just one, you know, there are mm -hmm. other ports that people have concern about. The, the, when we talk about ecosystem, again, oftentimes you don't think of human beings. Human beings are very much a part of the ecosystem. And I, in listening to the prior podcast, I appreciated the point that you and the sister made about um, noise pollution and, and, and respiratory concerns, especially during COVID-19. Uh, and, and for many people, because we cannot physically see the space that they're proposing to develop, you, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. not like we could see the entrance to the port. But if you were to see the physical space, it's an absolutely, um, the, the, the project site is made up of approximately 675 acres of land as well as the port access channel, birthing area, and turning basin, which is located on submerged forts and submerged sovereign lands. I haven't heard, and I have not read everything in the EIA. That is that is our territory. That the land under the water is sovereign, is Belizean land. How are we benefiting from a private company using it? And I still do not know, and if anybody knows, I would like them to tell me 
who, who are the owners of Belize Logistics Terminal Limited? I don't know who the owners are. There's so many unanswered questions at the Department of the Environment and NIAC. My position is they have a responsibility to have a public hearing. And uh, again, the group of environmental NGOs sent a letter. Uh, it was in August. And they made a reference to this amazing, powerful judgment by Chief Justice at the time, A.O. Conte, 19 December 2002. And it's the Queen and the Department of the Environment Belize Electric Company Limited as the respondents the applicant being exported Belize Alliance of Conservation Non-Governmental Organizations, Bakongo, respect to our ancestors, uh, Candy Gonzalez and George Gonzalez, um, for being with us in the spirit realm and guiding us through. But in this particular judgment, they were, Conte uh, was absolutely clear. The, the, the part that is of interest is that Conte was very clear in making the distinction between a public consultation within the EIA process and a public hearing at 75. It says, and one of the three principal functions of NIA is to advise the DOE of circumstances where a public hearing is desirable. Evidently the root of the confusion, according to this judgment, was when the public hearing should be held. From the minutes there is reference to a decision it is not clear whether this refers to a decision of NIAC on the EIA or a decision on it by the DOE. There was a failure, I think, to appreciate that public consultation on the EIA is a duty on the proponent, developer of the project, and the desirability of a public hearing is a function of NIAC to advise on or not. This confusion or failure throttled the positive vote for a public hearing from coming through. And finally, it says, uh, now, Regulation 24, and this is what I'm saying, the Department of Environment is not legally obligated to have a public hearing. Conte addressed that as well. He said, although Regulation 24 says that the DOE may require a public hearing on a project undertaking or activity, which clearly imports a discretion, subject, of course, to the consideration and subregulation too, which states, and then it went on to state um, why you would have a public hearing. So it says, two, in order to determine whether an undertaking project or activity requires a public hearing, the department shall take into account the following three factors. I'll just mention the one that is of interest to UEF as we organize. B, the degree of interest in the proposed undertaking project or activity by the public, the department and or other government agencies as evidenced by the public participation in the proposed undertaking project or activity. So depending on how much pressure we bring on the Department of the Environment will determine if we have a public hearing. And, and so that's what, again, UF is organizing around that Belizeans and the stevedores in particular, so that we may ask questions, get meaningful responses, and hold ourselves and the state accountable to ensure that this proposed development may or may not be in the best interest of Belizeans. Belizeans, to my knowledge, the state did not do any public awareness campaign how can you ask people about something they do not know about? 
and, and again, I didn't read everything on the EIA. I'm, I always go with my people. The majority of people that I've talked with said they do not know about it. Or they would say, I know there's going to be a project, but I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. We just want a job. So people don't know. So it's to ensure that people understand, have a public awareness campaign, do monitoring and evaluation to ensure that people understand that their questions are answered to their satisfaction, that they're able to respond. And from their response, you know that they truly understand what this proposed development is about and how it may impact our lives. And then ask them, what is it that they would want? And then you take that into serious consideration before NIAC reviews the environmental impact assessment. Yeah, at, at this point, the way things are structured, I have a lot of difficulty figuring out what the role the public consultations really play if it seems as if that regardless of how strong in those here, in those consultations, the public voices their opposition, it, it, it it's becomes a recommendation that's then ignored, right? Um, in that one in November, with the exception of two people um, among a about 100 people who are in the Facebook virtual consultation, out of everybody on there, only two people in any way voiced some degree of support for the project. And, and so it really just shows that a lot of people, once they understand what's at stake, do want to get organized around something. And the most effective tool a lot of times for these developers is just keeping people in the dark as long as they possibly can. Right now, um, in near the coastal road area, there's another project being proposed, a mine, and that and that one is looking to affect Gales Point. And similar to what you were saying about people being in survival mode in the south side of Belize, the people of Gales Point are are in a similar situation. Only there, what's happened is that they already were they've already gone through the cycle where the company tried to you know. Sweet, so talk them up and offer them jobs, but then the jobs more long term looks like Belizeans won't even be getting those jobs. So it's this thing that they offer you this promise that this will pr provide some sort of economic incentive for the people on the front lines. But then as soon as they don't need to live up to that, they they swap things out and and do things as cheaply as they can, which often involves bringing in labor, you know, externally that they can then disabuse whoever they like. That's why it's so important for us to have follow-ups and documentation and that we continue to call and that we continue to email. I, I cannot stress that enough. How absolutely important it is that and I know that at times people may say nothing ever changes. Well, if we do nothing, nothing will ever change. Once you send the, the email or you send the text to the number that uh, UEF is using, because it's not everyone who may have internet to use WhatsApp or to send an email, the number that we're encouraging people to send a text is 501. 654-2501, if you would like to support the position of the Department of the Environment to have a public hearing 
prior to the EIA being reviewed by NIAC, you can also send an email to EIAunit at environment.gov.bz, E-I-A-U-N-I-T at E-N-V-I-R-O-N-M-E-N-T dot G-O-V dot B-Z. And so I am always hopeful. As long as there's life, uh, there's hope for us to do something different. Um, we always learn is to document the, the, the information and, and stay unified. It's so absolutely important. Uh, and going back to what you were saying earlier, it's to hold this, the, the developer accountable to say, okay, it's a 200 million US dollars. I saw an article in one of the newspapers and it didn't say US dollars. And I listened to you and the sister having a conversation and you didn't say US dollars. The developer did say US dollars, 200 million US, 400 Belizean, 400 million Belizean dollars. Now, you, we need to see the numbers. What are the, what are the, what are the shareholders going to be getting? The, what are they get, going to get over the life of this? What are they going to get? How much money are they making? Because we need to look at what they're making compared to what our people will be getting. For how long will we be getting that? I mean, these are the things that we need to talk about. We, we're not comfortable talking about money, yet we need to do it. Yeah, and the EIA itself is very vague in terms of what type of job creation would even be uh, possible through the port. So they are clear in terms of benefits, in terms of them, them pitching the port as beneficial to the community, but are seemingly uninterested in giving more concrete information as to how many people would get different positions uh, along with, within the port work and everything that's happening right now with the Christian Workers Union and the controversy surrounding a lot of the shipment moving to Big Creek it really doesn't give me much confidence that these will be jobs where people have their labor rights recognized because it, it, in some way it feels like we're on a route towards labor disenfranchisement with the way that the current administration is being so... Um, is being so... Negligent of. Willfully yes. negligent. Yes, exactly. Negligent. Ought to be Willfully looking at Almost 40 years and the lives of the majority of Belizean people have gotten wasara systematically for generations. So where yes. the state had an obligation yes. to be the objective entity at the table, they have absolutely abandoned Belizean people, for example, by not even responding to that memorandum of understanding from the Christian Workers Union. And so they mm -hmm. have a pattern of not defending the interests of Belizean people. And so it's up to Belizean people to say enough is enough. The power is really with us. Now, oftentimes for us to exercise that power, it's going to be a great sacrifice. It's going to be a hardship. And that's what, yes. I, I mean, especially if you, you know, as, as human beings, we've made sacrifices. It means that you would do something you generally wouldn't do for an extended period of time because the, the, the reward, what you're going to reap is really going to be beneficial for you and other people. And, and that's, and again, we have a history of doing that in Belize. It's just that we don't know, like in the third is absolutely politically conscious, organized people throughout this country. 
when you don't know your stories, then you're going to repeat the ones that your oppressor told you. And so uh, it's really up to us, religion people. It's up to us. Yeah, nobody's going to come save us. And I think that's one thing that they're there. I think sometimes the NGOs that are invested in conservation are are assumed to be the people who will swoop in and save us. But what I've recognized over the past two years since moving back to Belize and engaging in this environmental work and, and the discourse around it is that their hands are tied for various reasons a lot of the time if they are hoping to continue to exist um, in the long term. And they, they have different interests than perhaps that the community on the front lines has, right? Um, I Unfortunately, I feel like not enough of the conversation around opposition to the port, not enough of it has been human-centered in terms of how people there will be impacted. And to me, that's really troubling because, again, as you had mentioned before, and you had spoken at length before the recording started, that people, when they're in survival mode, they're thinking short-term about how to acquire the things that they need to make it another day. And there seems to be very little effort in in engaging in some empathetic imagination as to how life in the Port Loyola, Mesopotamian area, life will be made even more difficult for people there as they continue to, as they potentially like have health issues that they have little hope of getting, you know, substantive care for. And just in terms of thinking of simple things like the pressure to the infrastructure there, it, 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 to me, it's very inconceivable that, that, that we are not engaged more so in talking about like, hey, like, you know, the people of, of Port are, are going to be in a lot of trouble if this happens. And let's have that conversation as opposed to framing it around the reefs or around the coastal ecosystems, things that people might care about, but might care less about than the possibility of having a really good job in their near their home i mean that that to, yes um i had shared um fear what you said fair mm-hmm. comment um i think it was aaron Dothy roy uh I, I forgot the the article that had talked in this yes article you, you shared it in that meeting and i read it afterwards the gentrification of of conservation or something like that yes uh-huh and so these, these mm-hmm. uh, like real talk, the NGOs are not here for Belizean people. Well, based on their actions consistently, I know they're working for conservation and to save the environment. Yet when they have not systematically engaged Belizean people for the length of time that they have been here, for the amount of resource, mm-hmm. benefits that they've received, mm-hmm. they receive low marks from me when it comes to public people participation in a meaningful way. And oftentimes I find them, even with born Belizean in leadership, I find them to be very elitist in their mindset, in their culture. And so um, I, I am hopeful I'm moving forward that the relationship between working class Belizean people and NGOs may develop into a healthy relationship. It would be best. I don't know. I really don't know. And, and to say that many NGOs, as our sister Arandote Roy said, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, many of these NGOs get their funding from philanthropists or established banking systems or organizations 
who are some of the same entities who are deeply entrenched within the capitalist system. Yep. Yeah, they don't want any, they don't want the type of change that we are fighting for to occur. So they want, they're only going to support the type of change that will maintain the status quo, the capitalist status quo. You're, you're exactly right. And I sometimes wish that there was a, there was a possibility for NGO representatives to be more frank about that, about their, about how their actions are limited by these various interests from their donor, their donor class, right? Um, because then if we would really understand that, then perhaps that would be another piece of the arsenal that we use, which is recognizing, hey, like they will only push so far. And really, if we want things to be changed on a more radical grassroots level, you know, radical as in the, the classic version of yanking it from the roots, we, we, we need to be doing that in, on our own in such a way that that recognizes the people on the ground as the leaders and not somebody that should be shown charity, but instead offered solidarity in, 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 in respect to what it takes to make a life in a position when the state seems totally disinvested in your well-being. Well, to, to end the interview, I wanted to ask if you had any final thoughts on where you think this work would go or where you believe that people can plug into this work. You already mentioned emailing or sending messages to the DOE regarding people wanting to have more, um, more public venues for conversation to learn more about the subject. But are there other ways, other people you see organizing on the ground that are providing this education to people that are, that are doing some sort of information sharing in the area? Uh, the short answer is no. I just wanted to, to quote from the article, The NGOization of Resistance by Aaron Dote Roy, September 23, 2014. NGOs give the impression that they are filling the vacuum created by a retreating state. And they are, but their real contribution is that they diffuse political anger and dole out as aid or benevolence what people ought to have by right. They yes. alter the public psyche. And the last paragraph that I thought was so profound said real political resistance offers no such shortcuts. The NGOization of politics threatens to turn resistance into a well-mannered, reasonable, salaried nine-to-five job with a few perks thrown in. Real resistance has real consequences and no salary. Real resistance has real consequences and no salary. And so many of the people in Belize who are recognized as community leaders or organizers, from my experience, are people who saw a need in their community and became active. They're not necessarily people who know that there's a science or a methodology to effective organizing. Uh, the importance of building allyship, the absolute importance of being spiritually rooted in movement work, how absolutely critical it is to do independent research and reasoning on a regular basis. And when you don't know, say you don't know. Yep. And, um, and to build international alliance in particular, because that is what is so important to know about international conventions and agreements that Belize has signed onto, 
because you can contact those people. You notice how organized the Mayas are in the South? Because mm-hmm. they've learned, for example, the UN system. They've got training. They have an indigenous person who recently, I, she became, uh, for, I, I, she just, Monica Kopp got a major um, recognition. She's a part of, I think it's cultural resistance. I can't remember. I'm saying these, these, cultural survival these are so absolutely important these connections have done meaningful work within the region and so i know when to go to people and say i'm stuck um what do i do Uh, have you done this before and that's why i give mad 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 respect to lisa because you can hear when you hear she carries a different vibration when you hear her speak she's deeply invested and she's one of the people i intend to work with and so I, the advice I get from a number of the other leaders and NGOs, you know, it's a job. That, that's the vibes I get, real talk. This is a conversation I've had several times with people affiliated with, with different NGOs. And, you know, um, if you would take a look at the guests on my show, a lot of them, a lot of them are not willing to, to be a participant on the show, largely due to not wanting to really ask questions about the limits of what they're willing to do, you know, like, are they willing to put um, bodies on the line? Are they willing to put their bodies on the line? I mean, more specifically, and the answer is no, right? They, 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 it, once the, once their, their day is done, unless they are getting paid over time, they're not really going to be sticking around to ensure that one project that's going to dis- devastate somebody else's community, not their own, it will, will not happen, right? They, they, and they, they can take things as acceptable losses. And a lot of the things that will happen on their watch will be totally unacceptable to those that are primarily affected by it, um, including you know, what we've spoken about today, the, the Port Loyola community, as well as the communities in rural Belize that are currently being impacted by various different environment, sorry, development projects that, in, that don't even require an EIA. And that's the thing, right? Like the EIA happens as a result of DOE discretion um, stating that this project needs an EIA, this one doesn't. And we get, we're right now we're talking about a big project that we all should be concerned about, but then there is the many projects that are, are labeled as not requiring one that then are just allowed to happen. And then those are just, uh, those are maybe in a more localized way just as devastating for those very same communities, but because there's not public noise around it, it just sort of is allowed to go go by unfettered uh, without con- consequence for anyone. And uh, to this morning, today is um, September second. The Belize Port Authority held its its public consultation regarding how they're going to manage the national port, the the national port ports of system. And what I was really distressed by the recurring conversation of we have to balance. Um, development with environmental concerns. And whenever that comes up, it is always used as the pretext to then state all the things that will be done in the environment that are considered warranted losses in the, for, in the, in the face of potential profit. And as you said, that profit, they never are clear about just how much, just how much of it will be gained, will, will benefit directly the people on the front lines and how much of it is going to be immediately leaving Belize through the form of um, of, of shareholder shareholder profits. It's a, con- it's, a, it's a conversation that we need to normalize. Um, Crumb Center mm-hmm. Facebook page is a space where you can go 
it's, it, you know, it's a lot to keep going through um, to just get to that because I do several posts um, throughout the day oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And so I can say, um, you know, listen to local news. And my personal number is 501-671-8050. And people can contact me there on WhatsApp. Uh, you also have the other number that I had given out. People do meet me in the streets and, and share their concern. The best I can do is just to keep it, keep the conversation alive uh, to, the, to the extent that people get tired of here, I'm going to talk about it. The number is 501-654-2501. You may text and say, if you support the Department of the Environment, having a public hearing about the proposed development at the Port of Belize Limited for a cargo expansion cruise terminal and cruise tourism village. Or you may send that email to eiaunit at environment.gov.bz. And if you can volunteer your services in any way with UEF on this particular initiative, I work, my preference is to work with credible people and I'm very straightforward about that. Uh, and there are so many ways that you can be of assistance. It is COVID-19, and so it has immediately minimized face-to-face -face contact, such as door knocking, which is still one of the most effective ways to communicate with people on the ground. And so you, again, uh, this coming Saturday from 10 to 11 is our first community conversation. I have a, I'll be talking with the youth from all the Jane Usher community, her name is, let me make sure I, I say her name right. Uh, again, I just recently met her. Her name is Myanda Griffith. Um, she studied tourism at Sixth Form and she doesn't know anything about the initiative and she's willing to come and sit down and talk as a young person because it's so important that we have young people involved in the process as well. Again, I have three other community seasoned community leaders within the community who I'll be working with. So I really want to thank you um, for this invitation. I'm telling you, Andre, people usually invite me and I don't accept invitations. In this case, I saw the, well, I listened to the interview, that, the podcast that you had about the Port of Belize Limited. And I was satisfied with the level of conversation um, and the and the centering of people in that conversation. And so I slept on it and then I agreed to do the interview. So I thank you for the opportunity and I look forward to hearing the final product. And uh, again, there's so many, as Lisa would say, you know, independent judging that may not need an EIA. And then you have that situation going on at Gilles Point Manatee is that we can only, mm -hmm. um, you know, promote the your social media space, Andre. Um, I tell people, give thanks we have our own media house. That's a plus for us. But um, it doesn't cost. I mean, it costs, but if it's once, if every Monday people say, here I go, yeah, yeah, again with a port. Every Monday, I call WB. Every, you want get tired of me. Every Monday, I call on top of the port. But it's that kind of strategic action that we need. Um, get a bullhorn, yes. go through the streets, talk about it. Use what you have creatively. Um, to let people understand that this is a major community alert and time is of essence. 
Yeah, we are definitely in um, a crunch. And I, I like what you said there. And I think that's a good note to end off on, which is something that I often hear in climate justice conversations, which is you don't need to become a different person. You need to bring come forward with your skills, with your knowledge, with your engagement in your community and put that energy towards um, collective projects like, like this one, collective organizing like this one. And um, I, I, I'm really... I'm really glad to see what you you've been able to do because it is a component of a campaign against the port in terms of that that I that I have been saying to a lot of people needed to have been happening but that needed to be led and spearheaded by somebody who is directly invested in that community and I was well aware that despite you know being invested in the well-being of those folks I you know I I understood that it was not a role for me or the people that I was in conversation with to fill. It was something that somebody else needed to take take the lead on who people in that community trusted. So it's really, to me, your work and the videos you've been able to do produce have been the most, um, have been the most inspirational or, or the most uh, energizing in the past couple of months to me when it comes to our, the potential for us to resist and find a way forward that is human-centric when it comes to any sort of development. Respect, Andre, and I cannot say enough how important it is because I don't live in that community. I live in Southside Belize City. That when you go in these communities that you mm -hmm. find the credible community leaders because they are the experts. They, are the, they have the intelligence. They know their community. They've done community mapping. They've worked with independent NGOs. They've worked with churches. They've worked with um, community groups. They've worked with youth. They've worked with... Um, disability organizations, they've worked on political campaign. These community leaders, many of them are exhausted. Our people keep coming in, asking them questions. Oftentimes they don't find out what happened with the information that they gave and, and they get exhausted. And so it's one of the points that I make that we have to absolutely recognize these community workers, these community leaders, these community organizers, because people will come to them and get the wealth of knowledge and then go and get a PhD and then get PhD money and then look back on them people. And if it wasn't for those people, they wouldn't have the content that they need to do original research when they go for their master's and PhD thesis. So respect to community leaders um, who have a, hmm, who have a, who have connection with other people in their communities and they're known for caring about people and serving people. And it's not in their interest to make money off what they do, even though they do need to be compensated in some way for the work that they've done and continue to do. So thanks a lot, Andre. And uh, I look forward to Monday night's hearing of this conversation. Yeah, me too. It, uh, I think it's going to be a good one. I, I enjoyed having you on the show. If you have a climate crisis or environmental story impacting Belize you'd like to discuss, you can contact us at Matafaya at gmail.com or messages on Facebook and Twitter at Matafaya and be sure to hit that follow button. Thanks to Alexander Evans for providing our theme song. You can find him on Instagram at Alexander Evans Music and thanks to Demi Williams for providing our artwork. And thanks to you for listening to Matafaya. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Rest when you can and find some shade.